Good evening. Uh, my name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. Now, without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce to you this evening W. Call Paul Coates. And um, Paul has been a Baltimore icon for some time. Actually, he's been most of his adult life here in Baltimore, although he is a native from a native of Philadelphia. And just to give you a little background about Paul, um, he is the founder and director of Black Classic Press, which specializes in publishing, republishing obscure and significant works by and about people of African descent. A leader in the field of small publishers, Coates founded BCP Digital Printing in 1995 to produce books and documents using digital print technology. So he was kind of way ahead of the curve. Coates formerly served as an African-American Studies Reference and Acquisition Librarian at Howard University in, in the Moreland Spingarn Research Center. He is a graduate of Clark Atlanta University with an MSLS, and he matriculated from Sojourner Douglas College. He is a former member and Maryland State Coordinator of the Black Panther Party, and he was instrumental in the establishment of the Black Panther Party archives at Howard University. Coates serves on the boards of the National Book Foundation, the Publishers Marketing Association, and Baltimore Reads. He is co-editor of Black Bibliophiles and Collectors, Preservers of Black History, published by Howard University Press. And he formerly owned and operated the Black Bookstore, which I remember on North Avenue going to the bookstore. Um, Paul would always have discussions about the books, and so he's always been a bibliophile ever since I've known Paul. He, um, his experience with the purchase, sale, and collection and publishing of books by and about blacks is a love affair that has continued for more than actually four decades. It is my pleasure to introduce to you W. Paul Coates. I want, I want to thank you, first of all, for that uh, introduction. I was just sitting here thinking, um, I wrote that line, his, his, love, his love affair with books has lasted more than, it, it started out two decades. Okay. <laughs> and I, th I think it's somewhere like around five decades now. It's, it's close to that, you know. Um, my um, co-part, not because we're married either, okay, she just got married. <laughs> Natalie Stokes, Natalie Stokes um, and I looked at this evening as an evening that we could do really a discussion about Black Classic Press, uh, that we could do a discussion about publishing, and uh, the world of books, period. A lot of the time would be spent with Black Classic Press. The one thing I'm, I wasn't prepared to do is to stand at the podium while we did it because we really wanted to have a, um, a discussion. One of the things that we, we were sitting in the office and um, one of the things that became clear in our discussion is, you know, there's not a lot of stuff out there on, on black classic press. And Nat and I have these discussions. I'm, I'm at that age and that stage 
where I am transitioning out of Black Classic Press. She's transitioning into Black Classic Press. So there's a lot of information sharing that's going on. And one of the things I don't, I, I have talked on Black Classic Press before, but we've never formally really talked about Black Classic Press. We've never really formally talked about uh, problems that we've had, challenges that we've had around the press, even real, real motivational things uh, around what, what keeps a, a black publishing company going. You know, where, where does it come from? Why does it run? And so we, we thought that we could do this best in an informal type of setting, and a perfect time would be Black History Month. And so we contacted uh, Judy, who does so many of the uh, wonderful things that happens, the programs that happen here, and we agreed that we would do it during this time. So that's a little bit of the background, and this does feel a little more comfortable than the podium and sitting up there. And I want, really want to thank everybody uh, for uh, being here uh, tonight. Uh, some of my um, old, old, old friends some of my old friends and some of my new friends are here. So I just want to thank all of y'all uh, for being here. And what we hope to do is have a discussion that leaves you uh, uh, in, informed, informed about Black Classic Press, um, and maybe informed about Natalie, okay? Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll share some stuff about Natalie. She'll share something. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the way we broke, I'll share some stuff about me too. The, the way we broke this down is that I would open and I would lead and talk about Black Classic Press, talk about, uh, talk a little bit about our history and, and why we even exist. Talk about that and bring it up to a point in which I'll pass it over to Natalie. See, because that's in keeping with that whole thing about transition, right? So we'll pass it over to Natalie, and she will answer all of the questions that y'all have about new media, <laughs> new media, uh, what's going to happen with the book, what is the future of paper, all of that stuff she'll answer. I have the job and the pleasure of sitting up here talking stuff and just sharing some stories, okay? Natalie has to do the hard work. <clears throat> but look. And I do want to do that. I want to, um, I want to share some stories, but I want to, I want to keep, the, there are like some points that I will keep coming back to. And I may say these in, 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 uh, in different ways, because I do say them in different ways, because they, they, they keep coming back to me. And let me phrase them this way for this evening. Importance of, importance of importance of finding center, importance of, um, of, of staying on track once you've found that center, um, keeping the door open, the importance of people, the importance of people believing in you. The importance of people believing in you. You know, people talk about believing in yourself and stuff like that. I got it like it's important for people to believe in you and you to be able to appreciate that. Okay? And gifts from strangers. So those are going to come back probably in different ways. 
And I don't want anybody to get mad if they don't come all back, okay? Some of them are going to come back, okay? So look, <clears throat> Black Classic Press really started, and some, some of you may know this, some of you may not know this, but this is, this is the way it goes. It started really out, it came out of the Black Panther Party. And it came out of, like, like the work we're doing now, a lot of it was shaped and formed during my days in the Black Panther Party. One of the great lessons that came to me out of the Black Panther Party, uh, you know, the Panthers had this thing of modeling revolutionaries around the world. And I know that Kim Il-sung, in some of y'all mind, was not a revolutionary, but in the Panthers' mind, when we looked for examples of liberating our community, we looked at Kim Il-sung among many of the people uh, in, in the world, whether it was uh, Samori Michelle, whether it was Mao Zedong, we looked for people who had fought imperialism. And one of the things that Kim Il-sung had that, that stuck with me when I was in the Panther Party, when I left the Panther Party, was this parable about a soldier. And uh, the soldier was teaching other soldiers. And in that parable, what he, what, he, what he gave them was an example. If you had a machine gun, if you had grenades, if you had a mimeograph machine, you were attacked by the enemy, which are you taking to get out? And the bottom line was, to make this go quicker, the bottom line was that the answer to that really was the mimeograph machine. Because with the, with, with the grenade, you could kill only so many people. Maybe you kill five people. Machine gun, you kill 50 people, 60 people, something like that. With the mimeograph machine, you had the opportunity of reaching minds. In that is a, um, uh, and, and, and tied up in that, tied up in that, the, the power of the mimeograph machine, in that parable, what spoke to me was my understanding of history, my understanding particularly of, of of black history, and the history of America too, but particularly black history, how many of the people that we know today as activist strugglers use the power of writing, the power of print, the power of communication to aid in the struggle of black people. And I left the Panther Party with that as, as a, a real thing in mind. And if you think about it, think about people like Martin Delaney. Think about people like uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, I was telling someone today, think about people like Marcus Garvey. Y'all know Marcus Garvey was a printer, right? I mean, that's, that's really what he was. <laughs> he was a printer when he came to this country. Um, and all of those people, very, very, very committed, committed to books and committed to the information that those books had. So I left the, the Panther Party with that as an understanding. I got with, uh, when I came out of the Panther Party, I got with... Um, <clears throat> a number of exes. Um, some were Muslim exes. In other words, they were no longer in the Muslims. Some of them were socialist exes. They were no longer in the socialist movement. Some of them were Panther exes. And I was an ex-Panther. So, so we all, it was about, I asked about six or seven of us, we got together. And, and the one thing that we could align around was the fact that the jails needed to be destroyed. And in those jails, we felt uh, given our examples with Malcolm, given our examples with George, that some of our best and our brightest minds were in that jail. Now, how are we going to attack those jails? And we decided that we would organize a, uh, an organization, the George Jackson Prison Movement, and that prison movement would attack those jails by bringing 
information into the jails and bringing out whole-minded men, whole-minded women to, to come back into our community. One of the things we decided we would do in terms of that information was build a structure. Y'all know like during the 60s and the 70s, the last thing you wanted to do if you, if you were a revolutionary was take money from the man, right? So you had to have an independent structure. And so we figured this thing out, right? And figured it out, and most of this was me, okay? We, we figured it out that we would build a, a, a bookstore structure. So when Jerry t talks about the, the bookstore, that bookstore, the black book, was part of the George Jackson prison movement. And that bookstore was supposed to be the first element of sending books into the prisons and jails. In fact, how the bookstore got funded was we, we did a book drive and we had people donate books that would go into the jails, okay? And then we cooked some fish and some other stuff and raised some money. <laughs> we were revolutionaries. <laughs> so, so anyway, the bookstore got funded and um, <clears throat> it got started that way. So we were to build the bookstore that was gonna sell books in, the black, in, in our community it would employ people in the community, and we would be able to send books into the prisons and the jails. Brothers coming out of the jail would help develop that bookstore, would help develop the other component also, which was a publishing company that would publish the books that we were going to use or send into the jail and send into our community. There was this whole thing about the brothers being incarcerated, sisters being incarcerated, um, in behind the wall and brothers and sisters being incarcerated on this side of the wall, okay? So we were working with both of them. In addition to the publishing company, the third step was really building a printing company that would actually print the books. And so it was, it was intended to be a, a cycle, a company that printed books, published books, and again, a large part of it was the whole thing about self-reliance and self Defense, and this came again right out of uh, the, the 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 struggles black black folks struggling for self determination in our communities. And to to make that story even shorter, that organization, those brothers, and it was mainly brothers. There was some there was there was uh, some sisters that uh, participated lightly, but it was brothers that really put it together. Those brothers and I lasted, I said, I, said, I, think it was, I said it was about six of them, seven of them, something like that. I get confused because it was either seven of them and we lasted six days or it was six of them and we lasted seven days. I can't remember. <laughs> but the socialists wanted to go in that direction. The nationalists wanted to go in that direction. The Panthers wanted to go in that direction. And it, it just wasn't going to work. Um, what, what happened was brother, there was a brother named Reginald Howard who had been in the Panther Party with me that was a miracle worker. Uh, he and I went on and we, we, we carried on the George Jackson prison movement. In that prison movement, we continued to do some of the programs that had been carried on by the Panther Party here because the Panther Party had closed up Huey Newton and them had brought, taken everybody back to the West Coast. We picked up on their programs, the breakfast program. We picked up on the food program. We picked up on the prison program, bailing people out of jail and a number of things in the community. And all of that was done out of that bookstore, the George Jackson Prison Movement bookstore called The Black Book. Here's the deal. 
I, I just want to mention Howard because I'll come back to him if I have the time. Howard was a, uh, a brother who had been fired from uh, Sparrow's Point. When we were in the party, he got fired. When we got out of the party, he got a settlement from, from Sparrow's Point. And he was the person who gave me the first, I don't know, $1,000, $1,400, I can't remember what it was, to buy books for the bookstore. He was the person that funded that. Now, he played less of a role in the bookstore, but it never would have, never, never, never would have gotten off the ground, I don't believe, had Howard not put up that money. And I'm, I really mentioned Howard today because one of the um, tragedies of knowing people so long is that you're subject to pass Howard on the street today because he's, he's, like, he's like homeless. He's like homeless. And part of it is his choice. You know, so I see him sometime on the street and we talk, we talk about the old times and stuff, and then he goes back and be homeless. It's like one of those things. But he was there at the beginning. He was one of the people that gave uh, Black Classic Press and uh, George Jackson Prison Movement its start. Here we're going. Many of you do remember the bookstore then. And many of you may remember that the bookstore started in 71, 78, I think it was, about 78, we started our first publishing. And I didn't know, I really, really didn't know, we had a vision for a publishing company, we had a vision for a printing company, I didn't know any of that stuff. Really, really didn't know any of that stuff. Didn't know that much about selling books. I knew I loved books, I knew I loved to read, but guess what? It was, it was like by doing it, it was by doing it that I really got to understand how to do it. And I got that from the people who I was, uh, call myself, helping. So it was brothers who would come in who had been in jail forever, and they would come in the store and they'd ask me for this book or that book that I'd never even heard of. And they asked me for people like, man, you got that book by... Uh, um, um, A.J. Rogers, A.J. Rogers. And you talk to brothers in the jail, now that's, and, and that's a brother called Joel Rogers, right? Joel Augustus Rogers, but they call him A.J. Rogers. I didn't know who the hell, heck they were talking about. <laughs> and the same thing for, for um, um, no one could pronounce Dr. Ben's name, Yosef Ben Jokanan. I will tell you, I, the first time that someone tried to explain who he was to me, I didn't know what the heck they were talking about because he couldn't pronounce his name first. And that's the way it was with so many of the early books. I didn't know the books. Brothers who had been in the jail would come out and ask me for books or else they would send their mothers, they would send their, their, their wives, their ladies, they would ask for these books. And what it did was it, it just ignited a thing to go search for these books. The more I searched for the books, the more it became clear how important it was that these books be republished. Ah, it gave, it gave the publishing company its mission and it gave the publishing company its, its, its star. Jay Rogers' work. Rogers was one of our great historians. I'm a great historian, self-trained historians. In fact, Rogers opened up the door for me to understand that some of our best historians were self-trained historians. And this is, this is in the old days because, you see, they didn't teach. There was no degree for black history. Even, even in the 20s, 
when Hansberry got his degree, he went as far as the bachelor's degree at Columbia. And when he wanted to go on, what they told him was, we, we, we can't really teach you African history. He had to make up the course himself. He had to make up the course himself. So our historians, and, and again, I got this access from the people I'm supposed to be helping. I got this access from them. So, <clears throat> the, the, the intent and the direction came out of the Panther Party. The mission came out of working after the Panther Party. The centering, where the mission was, came from the people who I was supposed to be helping. They gave the mission to Black Classic Press. They gave the mission to me, and they gave the center to me. Once I understood what that was, it's been very easy to stay focused on it, to stay focused on it. And that comes out of, of, of giving um, back to folks and actually getting more from the folks. I keep looking at Natalie because I think she's going to give me the time. <laughs> she, goes, she, goes, she over here listening to what I'm saying. <laughs> but, but look, <laughs> we've been very, very fortunate. As I said, we started with Howard taking part of his settlement money, setting us up at, 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 uh, in a bookstore. And literally every day, every day we were in that bookstore, we struggled, we struggled, and we struggled. And we struggled to hold things together financially. But again, even at that point, we had a mission. We had a reason for doing it. And y'all know how you get a mission. And you, you, you get some, some reason for doing it. It becomes much, much easier because it's larger than yourself. And that's, what it, that's really, really what it was for us. Even in going back to school and uh, getting a degree, now I had to do that. Y'all remember this song by Gil Scott Heron? Some of y'all are too young, I know, but most of y'all remember Gil Scott Heron. <laughs> Gil, Scott, Gil Scott had this, has a song talking about when push come to shove, you find exactly what you're made of. You have to put on the tie and all that stuff. That's how I felt when I had to go back to school. <laughs> and I had to go back to school because even though by that time I had gained so much understanding of history, so much understanding of the books, I, I couldn't be employed. I couldn't be employed, so I ended up going back to school. That's where Atlanta University comes in, not Clark Atlanta University. I went to, I went to Atlanta University, all right? Old school, Sylvia, that's it. <laughs> but in doing that, what it did was it gave me the opportunity so that I could work and so that we then could deal with reaching for the publishing company, Black, so, so that we could sustain the publishing company. So went from the bookstore in 78, when we closed the bookstore in 78, we immediately opened the publishing company. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you this. We didn't make out too well in the prisons. <laughs> you know, that, that prison movement. We took books into the prisons and what have you, and it, and it burnt us out. It burnt Howard out. It burnt the other people out that were with me at the time. really burnt us out. Um, so we weren't structured for that, although I continued thinking that we were a nonprofit for the next 10 years or so, something like that. It, it burnt us out. We had to change course. And that's when we set up the publishing company and went back to school. We closed the bookstore in 78. And out of, that, out of that closing, I mentioned Howard. Let me go back for a minute. I mentioned Howard. Uh, some of the people in this room are familiar with Churl Waters. 
another person, I, and I really want to mention her name uh, because she's critical to black classic press. Cheryl Waters was my wife until um, recently. Um, here is the power of people and, and power of people being generous. You know, when I went, when I, when I went, when I went to go back to school, Cheryl never was a force with Black Classic Press. He said to drag her in to, to work in Black Classic Press. But, but look, here's what she did. Here's how she made Black Classic Press live. In order for it to live, I had to go back to school. In order for me to go back to school, I had children that were not Cheryl's children. And those children had to be taken care of. And you know what Cheryl did? This is, this is personal stuff here. Um, but like, I've said it before, so Cheryl's cool with that, you know? Cheryl said, look, when you go back to school, I will take care of the kids. I'll work and I'll deal with, you know, dealing with the child support and what have you. You know, she did that. You know, she did that. And like out of that, she and I divorced a couple of years ago, but I got the power of somebody giving you something. And like I think about it all the time, all the time, like the power of somebody and, and appreciating that power. She's like my best friend now. You know, like, like, like we're really, really cool because she gave me not only my children by doing that, she gave me the time that I could spend with Black Classic Press also. You know, she gave me my dream. She allowed me to, again, stay focused and stay on course. So I just want to mention her, even if I don't get to tell you all the whole other stuff about this, you know, <laughs> I want to make sure I get Cheryl in. And um, that's, like, that's like the power of giving and, and uh, the power of um, sharing. So I wanted to make sure I got that in. The publishing company continued from 78 until 95 pretty much as a publishing company. And actually, it was probably about 94 as a publishing company. In the 90s, in the early 90s, we were doing pretty good. We really were doing pretty good. Most of the smaller publishing companies and black publishing companies, man, people were reading books on nationalism. Everybody wanted to get down and understand how the white man had done this how you done that and what have you. So there were a lot of black publishing companies. This was the fruit out of the black power movement of the 70s and 80s. In the 90s, it matured, and it matured in books, and it matured into people wanting to know more about themselves, and that found expression in publishing companies <coughs> like Black Classic Press. And here's the deal. We were probably one of the smaller black publishing companies at that time. This is uh, 80s and, and early 90s smaller. So it was, it was a good time for books, and then times changed. Times changed for us, too. So by 1993, the press had really gone through a, a, a high point in terms of selling, in terms of development, in terms of getting titles out, and we had hit, hit a wall in which books were not selling. Other publishing companies Black publishing companies and white publishing companies were experiencing the same thing. That's a whole nother story. That time pretty much coincides with the rise of Barnes and Nobles and the mega stores. Okay, not that they were, um, not that they were culprits. They developed an efficiency. They developed an efficient way of ordering books and stuff like that. Long story. Bottom line is we all hit a wall, and so that in 1994, I'm sitting in my office trying to figure out how to pay the rent. We moved into this warehouse, man. We were nice, right? Really, really nice. I'm trying to figure out how to pay the rent. And when I get ready to try to figure out how to pay the rent, I have a particular way of doing it, okay? I squeeze my head. Like 
<laughs> like the money going to come out of my hair. And I was, I was in the office squeezing my hair trying to figure out where this money was going to come from. And a guy knocks on the door and he's selling Xerox machines. And so the people who were in the front of the office said, we don't need a Xerox machine. We, got a, we, we, we have a Xerox machine. But I had heard about, I had heard about a, a, a machine. How are we doing? Okay, good, 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 good. Boy, <laughs> two more stories. <laughs> I can get at least five into that. <laughs> Look, so I heard about this machine that printed books, right? And it print, it, it could print books one at a time. Now, this was when I was a, I, I was a librarian over at Howard, right? And I'd heard about this machine, and I'm saying, why would anyone want a machine? that could print one book at a time. And Jerry was saying that, that we were ahead of the curve. I credit that to being a librarian, okay, and reading about these machines long before they, long before they, they even, even before they were developed. But I couldn't figure out why anybody would want a machine that prints one book at a time. It didn't make sense in 1990. It didn't make sense in 1991, 1994. It just didn't make sense because books were printed in the thousands. But sitting in my office, squeezing my head, and looking at all those boxes of books that I had in the back that were not sold, printing books one at a time made a whole lot of sense to me. And so I jumped up from my desk and said, get that guy, please have him come back. And so the guy came back, and I asked him, uh, the, the machine was called a Docutech. I said, well, we don't need a copy machine, but do you know anything about Docutech? And what the guy said was, Docutex, yeah, I know about Docutex, but you don't want one of them. You don't, you know, and, and, and here, here's the thing, don't let anybody take you off your stuff. He didn't want one of them. I wanted one of them. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I was still trying to figure out where the rent was coming from. But I really, really wanted one of them because it was relative to where I understood it. That, it took me a while, but I understood at that point where we were going. So anyway, I said, no, I do want one of them, and I want to talk to somebody about it. He said, well, I'm not the person, et cetera, et cetera. So the bottom line is he did hook me up with the, the team of folks. And here's something for y'all that ain't on that paper. And my brother Duck may know this because Duck is in the business, and he knows how this goes. Y'all have to remember that I'm broke. I ain't got no money, right? <laughs> it took six months to talk to these people and understand about the, the Docutech. It took six months. And then people kept, the, the, the sales team, they would send one person, they'd send three people, they'd send four people, and they would come in and they would talk to me about buying this machine and how to make it work, you know, how it was going to work and stuff like that. Six months we went through it, and we got to the seventh month, and they were ready to put the machine in. This is the point. They never asked me if I was broke. <laughs> they never asked me. They never, never asked me if I had any money. Never asked me. When they would come in the office as a team, I'd be shaking. You know, I, know, I know they're getting ready to ask me for something. You know? They never asked. And here's, here's the thing. We put, I didn't know it at the time, but we put the first Docutech installed commercially in Baltimore. Okay? I thought that all publishers were going to do it. It made sense to me, you know. We still are one of the few publishers that runs, that prints our books. 
one of the few in the country, white, there are no black ones, forget that, but one of the few white ones, all black ones, are Chinese ones. That's how far I was ahead of the curve. I thought everybody else was there. <laughs> it was insanity, you know? It was insanity. But it was also about our, you know, being centered and, and being in, in, that, in that thing where we dealt with self-reliance. Because you see, when we put that digital machine on the floor, we put that digital machine on the floor, it actually completed the circle that had begun at a time that I didn't know how that circle was going to be completed. We had, in fact, done the bookstore. We had, in fact, done the publishing company. And now we actually had the printing company. How significant is this? When we sat down in um, um, the early 70s and thought about building a, a, a printing company that printed books, that was insane. There's no way you could do it. There's no way. Do you know there is no black, there, there are no black printers, book printers in this country. There are no black book printers in this country. One of the things is that uh, the presses that they use with this stuff, the presses would literally, even today, cost a couple million dollars to set up an operation. Excuse me a minute, please. Can you, there, there it is, it's going off now. I must have sat on it to kick it back on. It, it, it just cost so much money. There was no way we could have done that then. But this machine, this machine allowed us to do it in a box. It gave us the same ability that other people took millions of dollars to deal with. So we went and became book printers. And we're still book publishers. And we completed the circle at that point. Here is, Nets had only got a few stories, right? Here, here is another story. This is, this is the truth. This is the truth. <laughs> yeah, the rest of it is stuff out. <laughs> but this part is true, y'all. I told y'all, they didn't ask me for money. They didn't ask for no money when they put the machine in. And the way they structured the deal, the way they structured the deal was they weren't supposed to get any money until three months later. Payments were supposed to start three months later, provided they had installed all of the equipment. They didn't install all the equipment on time. So it actually was six months before they got the first month's payment. During those six months, they gave us free use of the machine. Now, here, now we caught hell. We, 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 we had a time after that, okay? <laughs> we had a time after that. But, but, but here's the point. What I didn't understand because I, I didn't do those transactions. I didn't have a history of doing those transactions. I didn't have a father. I didn't have an uncle. I didn't have a mother. I didn't have a brother who had done those transactions. That's how it is when you buy large equipment. You know, you go out and you want to buy that chair, they really will run you through the mill. They want your mother to sign, your, your uncle to sign. They, they want your firstborn. They want everything. When you're buying something that's three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, it ain't rolling like that. You know, they, they look at David and they say, oh, you, you want to buy this? Oh, you're the man. <laughs> you know? And that's what they did. That was a tremendous lesson. And I shared that because I would want you to repeat that. I would want you to understand it and I would want you to repeat it because those are the stories that really need to be repeated in, in our community. Like we think all the time that we got to have you know, like, like I got to have a half million dollars before I put that press on the floor. I'm telling y'all, I'm telling y'all, I swear that the, the first month's payment 
this was this is six months after six months after the stuff had already been installed the first month's payment was fifteen hundred dollars how significant is that you get a chance one to complete your vision <laughs> you understand you get a chance to complete your vision and you get a chance really to dabble in some of the newest technology that actually levels the field levels the field these are these are um lessons that I wanted that 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 I got I got two more minutes <laughs> I don't know if I can go on for two more minutes <laughs> but uh, since that time we we're, we're talking about 15 years ago uh, oh oh here's another story y'all look look <laughs> Y'all know how I told y'all I, I, was, I used to be shaking in my boots when they coming in. I'm thinking, and I swear on the last day when they got ready to install that equipment, they took me to lunch and everything, and I just knew they were going to ask me for a check. <laughs> I swear, I just... <sighs> and so you got to be cool when you're doing this stuff. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, pa pass that salad, please. You know? <laughs> so you got to be real cool. But, but, but um, here is the, um, the other part about it. The sales team kept coming in, and the sales team kept saying, oh, oh, you, you got to meet Kenny. This is the guy that ran the joint, right? He ran Xerox, the team. You got to meet Kenny. He's going to like you. Uh, he's a tough guy, though. You got to meet Kenny. So this went on for six months. I didn't meet Kenny until the deal went down, and they bring Kenny in. Y'all know Kenny's a brother, right? Not, not that he's helping the brother over here, though. I ain't tell you, I ain't tell you. But it was so, like, like the way they kept saying it, I knew that this was what was happening. But there was this wonderful thing that this brother on this end was dealing with Xerox's technology and running the state of Maryland with their technology. There was this other thing on this other end that, that this Negro over here was putting in the first machine that they had done. Now, here, here's how deep that is. They ain't got that many machines in, in Baltimore now. This is 15 years later, 15 years later. Most of those machines, and this was the other thing, most of those machines went into federal installations. They went into state and government installations. The average person wasn't buying those machines. But here is the problem. And Jerry was saying, well, we were ahead of the curve. That part is true. And here, here is how far ahead of the curve we were. Many of the printing companies, those companies I talked about, there were million-dollar companies, many of those companies are gone now because the metal that they invested in was paid for when Xerox came around saying, well, we'll sell you this machine for $400,000. They said, oh, we don't need that. But technology had changed. Print runs had started to go down. When we print books now, and all of our books we print, and here's a commercial. We have books for sale on the table in the back, Okay. Here's another commercial. Here's another commercial with something that we're experimenting with. Those books are all priced, and you can ignore the price and pay what you choose for the books. We don't really even care. Y'all see? See, I'm getting ready to transition. I can afford to do this. Natalie got to worry about this. <laughs> we, we, we can experiment with new economics, you know? But, but, but seriously, we, we're, we're dealing with pay as you choose for the books that are on the table. Look at the books. You'll see the price on them. Pay, pay whatever you choose for them. Because it is about, like, we're, we're book publishers, but we get to work in our community in different ways. And one of the ways we get, even in this room, we get to talk about a, a different way of doing economics, a different way of doing economics. And that is to say that that cup didn't cost $5. That cup costs something, but you get to pay what you choose for it. 
And it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but it's an interesting thing in terms of pay what you choose or pay what you want because it calls something inside of you to respond. Like, like there's this transaction going on. And, and y'all know where this come from, right? Y'all know this come from the continent. And, and, and in the old days, and this is how Portuguese first came into the continent, they used to do this, and, and, and actually the Carthini, uh, Carthaginians used to do this too. They used to do this silent trade in which they would leave goods, they, they would hit the land, leave goods on the hand, and the brothers would come out and take the goods and leave gold. Y'all heard about the silent trade, you know? That's how it was done. Now, if the amount of gold was not correct, then the folks that were on the ship would not move. They would wait there. Okay, that's how they would deal, they would deal with their exchange. That's how they would deal with their exchange. So this is not silent trade. We, we're going to talk while we take your money. <laughs> but, but honestly, it's pay as you choose. Look. The, the, the thing I wanted to close on, on, on my part, really is, uh, there are actually two things. One, we print all of our books now. And we may print a book for distribution. Our initial print may be five books, it may be 10 books, it may be 20 books. So I really do understand why somebody would do <laughs> one book at a time. We're only printing as many books as we sell. If we sell the book, we print the book. If we don't sell the book, we don't print it. So in terms of having warehouses full of books, that's not something that we experience at Black Classic Press. Um, I think I'm going to close on that because my transition is to introduce Natalie Stokes-Peters. And um, Natalie will just tell you about herself and how she came to Black Classic Press. But she also will talk a little bit about where we're going. Again, we're, we're in a, a state of transition. This part wasn't envisioned when, when, we, when, when, when we did the George Jackson prison movement, never envisioned anything about transition because we envisioned the revolution was coming. You know, we wouldn't have to worry about this stuff. So the idea that I would reach an age that I need to look around for somebody to transition to never occurred to me. Here's the beauty in it. And Natalie will share this with me. I really didn't have to look very hard for her. You know, like she showed up. She showed up. Miss um, Natalie Stokes-Peters, thank you for being so patient. Thank you. Thank you. I, don't, I don't have quite as many stories as Paul has. Um, and, I, and I'll talk a little bit about moving forward. So that's only a story that I would make up. It's not a retelling, even if parts of it are true or not true. Um, you're embellished. Um, you know, I, there was something that occurred to me while Paul was speaking, and you mentioned Howard. And I would say that I didn't know all of the story about Howard and the role he played. What I knew is that Howard would come by the office at our old location, and he would show up, and Howard would just grab a seat. You didn't have to talk to him or engage him. He would sit there and watch you, and every now and then he might say something to you, but you could go on about what you were doing because Howard was just choosing to be in that space. And we moved in 2008 to a different location. And I haven't seen Howard, and it occurs to me that I miss Howard. Like, like you miss that presence. And so, you know, and I remember when we moved and speaking with Linda, who also works with I was like, well, now how's Howard going to find us? But... Something in me says, Howard, he has found us, y'all. I mean, 
<laughs> oh, does he? Okay. See, Howard shows up when I'm not there. But Howard would come in and tell us about this man who would run around Baltimore without shoes on. And one day I saw this man and I was like, that's Howard's man. Irrelevant to books publishing or anything we were doing. But, but that was also just a presence, you know, that, that we at least had. And so I appreciate knowing the full story. It's part of the story about Howard. Um, a, a, a little bit about me. I come to publishing by way of um, an engineering degree, <laughs> two engineering degrees, which is, you know, was a, you're good at math and science, you ought to be an engineer. Okay. So I go and I do that, and then I go work in corporate America, um, Procter & Gamble, for 13 years. But I knew, like, that wasn't where I had a, what I had a passion for. And, um, and so I knew the last assignment I went to, when I, when, when I started it, I said, this is my last assignment with a proctor, and I knew it. Now, it was four and a half years later after that, but I knew when I started that that was going to be it, and I knew that I wanted to do something with books. I didn't know what. I thought I wanted a bookstore. You know, I, I, I'm not a writer. I'm an engineer. I'm not a writer. So it wasn't that. But I knew it had something to do with books. And... Um, and so, and so there were two things. Uh, I don't know if you all know Robin Green, but Robin Green would put on workshops, these Right Now workshops. And so I said, well, I'm going to go to one of these Right Now workshops because someone's going to be there talking about publishing. And we're in a room, and Cheryl is actually, Cheryl Waters is doing the presentation. And she says, okay, you know, here's about me. Now we're going to go around the room, and everybody tell me, you know, what you're working on, you know, your books or whatever. And when she got to me, I said, well, I'm not a writer. I said, but I want to do what you do. And, you know, and she kind of said, okay, all right, that's different. But I didn't know what publishers did, but I said, I want to find out. So, of course, afterwards I do the right thing and I write Cheryl a letter, you know. It was so nice meeting you, just trying to make sure my name resonated. And that was kind of it. I'm still working at Proctor full time. I get involved in some other work and with this, some workshops. And what they do is assign a contact person to you before you, you take this class. And the person that gets assigned to me is Cheryl Waters. And I, she called, and I had to go dig through my papers to find this, this, this publishing workshop. And I'm like, this is the same person. Like, pay attention, pay attention. The same person is being put in front of you for, you know, for the second time. And then I'm shopping at a store. And there's Cheryl again. And I said, okay, you know, like, like this is it. <laughs> you know, we, I really have to talk to her. And, um, and she said, well, what you really need to do is talk to my husband because he's the publisher. And I said, okay. So we're all in the same session one night. And at break time, Paul and I, I go out into the hallway. And, you know, I said, well, I want to I wanna publish. I said, I want to publish black books. I knew this. I want to publish black books. Paul said, what do you mean? You don't want to publish black books. You ain't no money in black books. You don't want to publish back black books. And I said, yes, I want to publish black books. So, you know, it was like I knew where I wanted to go, and Paul's telling me no, and I'm like, no, this is what I want to do. So anyway, you know, I tell him that, you know, I intend to leave Proctor at some point, and he's like, well, give me a call, you know, whenever you leave, and we'll look at something in. And a couple years later, I called Paul, did an internship, Paul didn't know me, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm used to corporate. I'm going, just like you with Xerox not asking for money, he didn't ask for a resume. He didn't ask for an ID. He didn't ask for any, he didn't even say, can you spell or read or any of that. 
But he said, come on in. And, and I got to be in that space, um, like, free of charge. Like, it was easy. When he says I came to him, it was easy for me. I, couldn't have belie- I didn't believe that it would be like that. But that's what happens when, for me, like, that's, that's a, somebody showing up and you knowing what you want, and so you're being, you know, it's like responding to it. When some, you know, you go into the store for a pair of black shoes and somebody shows you brown, don't get the brown ones, you want it black. So, you know, it was I wanted to do publishing, and so it was like, this is what I need to do, even if this man told me, you know, I didn't, there'd be no money in it, you know, all those stories. But, so that's how I come to Paul, and so that was a gift as well, because I, I, I didn't expect it. Didn't expect it at any level. Didn't think anybody would do something like that. I'm thinking, he crazy, you know, and I was right. <laughs> um, but, um, but that's how I came to work with Black Classic Press. And I did part-time and came on board full-time in 2006. And it really is that I do have a love and a passion for books. Um, I love the books that we do. Some, uh, this is um, like when Paula will tell this is my favorite book that we do. This is my favorite book. And we went to a conference, and I said, I am selling this book. And it was after that this book started getting adopted for courses, and people were ordering it. We did a conference last week, and this book, the quantity I took, this is the book that sold out. It's survey graphic. It's a reprint from 1925. It was edited by Elaine Locke before The New Negro was done. So this is, and this is my favorite book that we do. but it's just a reflection of all the books. And, and I probably am a, a, a novice at knowing all the books as well. So even as I think about transition, um, Paul and I have a list anyway of books that we're going to do. <laughs> we have a list of over 20-some-odd books that we're, we're ABCing, like this is first, this is second. But what, and these are books that, have been, that, are, that are slated for reprint. Now what's happening is... Um, we also made a conscious choice to say that we're going to work our way into the academic market. Um, and in 2007, our really big foray, our really has been this book, which is Introduction to African American Studies. And that kind of fell into our hands as well. We didn't have to go seek out this book. It came to us by way of another one of our authors. Um, and this book has been very successful for us, but we know that this is the way for us to go. So we have this dual path. We have that we will do new because people are used to us doing reprints. And that's what they know us for when I go out. People say, oh, you're doing new books because they're used to that. So we are making a turn of a tide, but we aren't abandoning our reprints. We're not doing that. So because there's still so many. When Paul and I sit down, there's so many to do, and so many that are important, and so many to get the conversations. And in a lot of these books, some things they were talking about are just as relevant today as they were in 1911, as they were in 1860. So they're, they're still very relevant books that, that need to be put into print. So my commitment with the press is that we continue to do that. Like, there isn't a shift, but there is an and to it. We can do reprints, and we can do new books. Um, this year, we have, I think, five to six books that will be done, which are quite a bit, and it's a mixture of old and new. We have Marcus Garvey and the Vision of Africa, um, um, edited by um, John Henry Clark, that will be available this spring. And it has been out of print for a very long time. But I loved, Paul, wants, Paul always wants to read to you from this book. You know, he wants you to sit down, <laughs> he opens the book, and he reads, and you sit and you listen. But I love the way that book is done. 
And I think that that's something that we all need to really get. You know, it's, it's like here's what, here's what change looks like. Here's what independence looks like. Here's what running your own business looks like. Here's what taking a risk looks like for us. And here's what it looks like when folks don't like what you're doing. You know, and so that you can, you know, so it's, it's just like knowing these things is what I feel like we need to do. Um, so that's, that's, so in terms of the value system of the press, those things are still there. Um, knowing to give back to community. Paul talks about the all books priced by you. They are, it, because we can choose. Within our community, we can choose really what we do with them. And, and that's the freedom, you know, of even being an independent press and knowing that we are printing our own books and, yeah, we'll pay for them somewhere, somewhere else with something else. So the printing company makes all the money, y'all. He was, you know, but the printing company will pay for it. But, but we really can choose what we do. Um, now, with that, I would also say, though, that as Paul talked about wanting to have his own press, what I would say is that I really am working on the change to... Um, to also get us into our ebook formats. Like, we have to do it. I go back and look at the contracts from before, and so I need to go renew a lot of our contracts so that the authors can also, we can also have the ebook rights for authors. So there's a rework piece, but then every single new contract that we do has ebook rights in there. It's a technology, like, we can't ignore it. It's, um, it's something that, now, and we talked about a myth in black publishing or, or in publishing is that books will go away. I don't think, I, I do, books aren't going to go away, away. Um, but there's going to be a major transition. Today, I, I was looking for something else, and there are 810,000 books in the Kindle format only. That doesn't include Nook and all those other formats. That's just Kindle, 810,000 books. Many books are not, even, are not being published in print anymore at all. Some authors have said, I'm not doing any more print books, or what are called p-books. You know, so we have, to, we, have, we have to keep up with that, and in our community we have to keep up with that because we can't afford to get left behind in this front. So, so that's part of my work is really helping us do a conversion, and it's an and conversation, helping us do the conversion to e-books as well as p-books. The plus of that is is we do have some obscure books. Some sell probably 10 books a year, <laughs> you know, but it's a value to the person who got it. And, and us being able to do obscure books in electronic books format helps us because then we still don't have to, to do the tree. The person has it immediately. It's all of those things. And so we have to make those transitions. And, um, but it's not exclusive. There may be some books that we do that, but that's part of the work that I do. Um, there's one other thing that I was going to say. I'm looking at my notes now, right? Paul and I were sitting there this morning, and, I, and he was talking, and we were preparing, and I said, you look like a grandfather telling stories. And he said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell stories. I said, well, I'll do more, you know, business kind of things. But um, so I taught core values. I talked about e-books. Now, here's a couple things. We, the the write-up said we were going to talk about the future of writers, readers, and black books, I believe. Um, and I don't, writers and readers, what I would say is that for us, as, as a publisher, you know, we get to create the cultural conversation for what we publish. As writers and readers in this room, we get to create the cultural conversation about black books, about uh, black publishing companies, about black writers. Some of the same stories, I think, that existed 
around could black folks get published still go on today. You know, and it's not just black folks. I mean, it's, as people become more and more scrutinizing around what's going to make money and what's not, they, there's still some belief. We don't believe it. There's still some belief that people don't buy books about black folk. But we have the opportunity as a community to create that conversation and to build into that. There are black publishers. There are a lot of black publishers out there, and there are a lot of black folks working with main publishing houses. And so, you know, it's, we aren't disappearing. We're still growing. Um, but we get to choose what we do, okay? We get to choose that. Um, as a writer, now I don't know. First of all, I don't know everything. I, don't, I, don't, I know very little, very little. But what I would say is as a writer, um, um, be prepared. This year I think they said a million books were going to be published in both PPUB and EPUB formats. A couple years ago, that number was like 300,000, I believe, a year, and we're up to a million books a year. As a writer, um, be prepared on your deals. You know, advances and these, even big writers don't get the, uh, the advances that they used to get. Be prepared to write your book. Be prepared to market your book like crazy um, because self-publishing and e-publishing has allowed everyone to publish. And so you're not just competing against somebody else. You are competing against everybody who wants, I mean, and they're not all good. They're not all bad, but they're not all good. So, so the thing is really, is be pre really be prepared to talk about and market your books. You, you have to. We have to. Um, which, again, is the cultural conversation. You know somebody got a good book, talk about it. Good black book, talk about it. Send them to our website. Send them to Africa World Press. Send them to Third World Press, please. You know, that, that's the thing. Um, for readers, and again, I'll go back to exposing our kids. Our, many of our kids are growing up with the computer is a normal thing. They see it everywhere. And so it's like, what do you mean you don't have a computer? What do you mean you don't know how to use it? They know how to do things faster and quicker than we do. Um, but the thing around the whole reading piece is that it doesn't matter what the format is. Like, I love holding a book. But it doesn't matter what the format is as long as we keep our kids reading and reading our materials, which is why we have to do ebook format as well. Because if our books are not available in ebook format, there are some school systems that have adopted curriculums where the books are only ebooks. And so if we don't have it available, then it's not there for them to read. They're in the same situation as we were when these guys said, I want to do, you know, book publishing in a book. So we're in the same place. So we have to play that game. Um, I don't really have a whole lot more to share because, I mean, really it is, it's the same values. Um, Paul talks about transitioning, um, and he's talked about that for a long time. Like, sometimes he says, I'm going to retire in two years, but for six years I've been hearing Paul saying he's going to retire in, six in two years, so I think he's getting to be a little bit more real about it, but, um, but we work on that, but there's still so much that he wants to do and that we want to do He's got this thing about black cookbooks he keeps talking about. But I'm like, when is that going to happen? Because you only got two years, right? So I don't know. Now, now, now I'm going to close on this note. Um, I talked about the books that we have, we have coming out this year, and some of them we have posters of. But one of the things that Paul didn't mention, um, which has also been key to us, has been the relationship that he has with Mosley. Um, and, and, and my, how Walter and Paul occur to me um, are as brothers. 
Like that was that was supposed to happen as well. Um, and one of the things that we do, like we always, like every now and then, Walter's Walter's work is a little bit more work than everybody else's because folks recognize his name. We work a little bit harder. But what started it all was gone fishing. Um, and, and one of the things that we talked about tonight is like, oh, what are we going to give people? What are we going to do? And we said, we have these signed posters that Walter did when they first did Gone Fishing. Paul has also signed those posters. Now, this is the one that we keep in our office. It's beautifully framed, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> That's my neighbor, Cassandra. She's like, ooh, yeah. That's an old business that I used to do, too. Um, but we have... We have, um, I guess we have questions. Are there, let me do this. Let me do, are there questions? We wanted to be, you all to be able to give to us as well. So are there questions, comments, you know, anything? Yes. I'm a part of a, well, I'm a founder of a, of a photo black photographers group that's based in D.C. And I'm just beginning to, we founded it back in 1978, in fact. But, um, I'm just beginning to get involved with the group again. Uh, it's called the Exposure Group, and there's a great number of people who are highly competent photographers. And it's some, some of them are talking about publishing. Have you worked with photographers in terms of publishing their work? And are you open to the idea? You, you, you know, uh, Bernard, that's a, that's a question. Because the, the whole um, thing on digital printing, it, it, you, you, you can do, we can do photography books. You can do photography books with digital printing, as is evidenced by companies like Lulu and other companies that are online. But the amount of books you do and be cost effective with them, it, it, there's a limitation. But there's also a limitation in terms of the technology that's available digitally to do. Most of your fine art books you want to produce at a higher quality. And digital still is not there except in the form of color. It's close to that. It really is close to that. So there are some technical limitations that restrict how much um, uh, photo books can be done. And the same thing is for, uh, occurs in the case of uh, children's books, Margaret. And, and we've talked about this. It's, it's coming down color. And, and the ability to reproduce color is coming down. And the intent in a digital world is to have color cost exactly the same thing black and white cost. You, 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 you got that? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the barrier that everyone is working toward. And, and it's coming there. You, you guys must see it in the commercial markets. If you don't go into Kinko's, if you come to BCP Digital Printing, you'll see it. You know? but, but the color curve is going down. The cost of color is going down. And the intent is to drive it to where black and white is. The world will change in, in terms of print. It's still the, it's still the ability of, the, of that printer to get the quality of those prints, the tonality of them. And most of the digital printers are really, really good at laying down um, black ink text. But when it comes to photographs, you can get some of it, and some of it's passable, but, but it's not the same thing as you would get otherwise. We, we have about another 10 minutes or so uh, for questions. I know Natalie's presentation raised questions. Mine did not, I know, but <laughs> Natalie's did, so she's open. Any other questions? <laughs> but um, and this will be um, 
and it, it will be podcast on the library's website, but um, it's really, I mean, this is truly black history. Mm-hmm. And I wish you'd start writing it down, Paul. I have. Yeah. I have. I have. I, I, I get maybe about a paragraph a week, something like that. I'm real productive. <laughs> I'm serious. I get about a paragraph every couple of days or something like that. Right, because you've had just such a fascinating life, and you've, you've shared these stories with us tonight, but I know you have many, many more. And, mm-hmm. and I remember when you published Gone Fishing, and, and I remember you talking about the challenges that that created for a small operation like you, and, and you haven't even you know, yeah. gone into that. I mean, that's, that's another whole chapter, right, too. So right. yeah. anyway, thank you so much, and thank you, Natalie, and good luck in carrying on this tradition. You have big shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah she does. <laughs> What, what, what do we say? <laughs> but look, you, you, you know, the, the, you. the thing that I didn't get to, and I'm sorry, Margaret, the thing that I didn't get to, and, and I, I'm, I would have rambled off to get to it, that I just want to leave in this place, and I want to leave with you, is I've said it a couple times, but I don't feel I've, I've hit it. I really don't feel I've hit it, is really the importance of people to who I am and to who Black Classic Press is. And the generosity of people, the ability of the black communities to, to, to support this institution has allowed me to see its support of all other institutions. And it, it's just like, like when we, put them, when we put that big machine on the floor, it wasn't just to print our books because it became clear to pay for that machine, we were going to have to print everybody else's books. We were going to have to print, we, we were going to have to go into organizations, we were going to have to go into businesses, and we had to develop a whole sales force. The interesting thing is, as we went into those businesses, and excuse me, Mario, I'll try to make, as we went into those businesses, what we found was that the people who were usually doing the uh, business of writing the checks and making decisions on the order, so often those people were black people. And you know what? Like, unlike what you hear about folks not being supportive, they would, almost universally, they'd welcome us in the door. And, and here, here it is. It, someone could say it was racial, not racist, that we, that we got welcomed in, and, and I get welcomed now when I go in the door. If there's a black person sitting up, sitting up there and they write the checks, th- that job is usually mine to lose. You know, it's one of those type things. Because what happens is, in their mind, and this happens for black folks and it happens for white folks repeatedly, in their minds what they see is that this is a black person that's coming in that can actually do the work that has the same equipment, can actually do the work, and they actually want to give that person a chance because everyone else that's been in front of them has been white. You know, and there's just this thing saying, oh, wait a minute, something is different here. And so we've benefited from that immensely, immensely. And I'm just so grateful. Margaret. <laughs> well, Margaret's one of my favorite people. Y'all know Margaret, Margaret Musgrave? She, yeah. she is our celebrated children's author, and Richard is so wonderful, blessed to sit next to you. you know? <laughs> no, I just wanted to say thank you for sharing your faith walk, because I think that some of the things that you said just inspire us to have more faith in ourselves and in our own journey. Because I know I lost faith at a point, and, and, and Paul kind of, you know, you kind of helped me. You talked to me for 
a couple hours and encouraged me. But, but you do lose faith sometimes when you try so hard and you keep knocking at these doors and the doors just slam in your face and you know you've got something to say. You know, so I want to just thank you for you know, re-inspiring my own my faith. And I, I think Margaret said that about the doors so I could get this part in about keeping the doors open. You know? and, and, and it's, it's true. The, 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 the lesson of all of this has been, the lesson of all this has been, like if we had stopped at the George Jackson prison movement when we didn't have the money, if we closed the doors at that point, none of this, none of this would, would, would have happened. We wouldn't even be talking about Xerox. We wouldn't be talking about me worrying about paying them some money or something like that because it never would have happened. And it is a lot to do with going on, just like in our, in our personal lives, going past whatever the adversity is, sticking through and, and hanging with it. That's our responsibility as people, and it certainly is our responsibility to our community, to ourselves, to those who come behind us. Hi, I'm Rochelle Taylor, by the way. Nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to be in your, your presence. Um, so you and Allie were talking about this new vision and, and then also the things that, that helped you get to this level, but what is it that you need as an organization now to get you into the next the next phase, you know, into this whole ebook. Um, I mean, you know, and I guess you could probably take that. And, and I, you know, because it's, I know it's not just resting on your shoulders as a leader, but then where, where are your resources in terms of people? See, my, my, uh, <laughs> I go to functional at this point in time, and I'm going, I need some good interns. <laughs> I really, I do. Like, I really do. I need, you know, folks who are, and we talk about bringing people on board, so we're looking for people who know graphic design, people who are looking at editing, people who, what's our other area? Marketing. You know, so there's like three veins that we, we do work with interns, um, and we probably haven't worked with one in a couple of years now. We were just moving on out a lot, but that would look like help to me. So, so, so I haven't posted it on the website yet, um, but we do have, and, and there's an email list, that if you aren't on it in the back of the room, there's an opportunity to get on our email list. Um, it, it, you know, there will be, I, I can send out the, the criteria and what we're looking for to people so that you all can help if there are people that you know, you know, doing that. Because that's the other thing about giving back to the community. When I came on board with Paul, I was old already. You know, I had already worked one career, and he's talking internship, and I'm kind of going, internship? I'm 36 years old. I don't know. I want a job, career, or something. But, um, but there are opportunities to do that and develop. And so that's one of the things that we do in giving back really is giving the experience. And I, I looked for nothing. I expected nothing out of getting the, ac the experience. And so sometimes it turns into something that you don't even predict. So that, like, that would be my big one. I don't know. Paul may have some other visionary you know, thing, but on the day-to-day, -day, like great interns. I, I, think, I think what you're saying is, is, is so, uh, because that's the other thing about uh, the press, we actually have interned a lot of people, and there aren't many places where, um, really, where, where anyone can go <laughs> and get the experience, but, but especially in the black community, where if you're looking at working in a black press. And we've had the fortune of working with a number of people and bringing them in as interns and turning them back, and a number of them have gone on to wonderful careers, actually, uh, in publishing and what have you. So the intern uh, piece is big. Judy, how are we doing? Okay. And, and really, um, I want to thank Pratt 
an institution that I've always loved. Um, I want to thank Judy and Jerry. Thank you both. Um, and y'all know part of my journey was working here or interning here at Pratt. Okay, so part of my journey was here when I was in school at Sojourner Douglas. I um, interned with Eva Slazak, who was then in the Merlin room. Um, so this is part of my journey and part of my home. This is like being home, this room. So thank you. Thank you guys for saying Well, this, this, this is so interesting. Taliba is, is certainly one, one of the people I've known for many years, but I didn't know she was affiliated with their program. Well, Taliba, we, we actually, um, I think this summer, did we have anyone this summer? We usually have four or five or six kids. Yeah, we usually do, and uh, through that program, you know, I'm, I'm saying through that program, through that program, but we also have, whenever we've had money, made a way to have kids in the shop during the summer to give them that experience, uh, initial experience, and, and not so much that children and young folks are going to get all of that experience in the summer. It ain't even got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with black people running a business. It's got to do with black people answering questions and handling stacks of money and paying bills and, and moving money around and stuff like that. It's really got to do with that. But, but, but still, I'll, I'll deal with keep, definitely, you know, we, 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 can, we can talk on that. We probably work with some other people in your office, but I didn't know you did that. If, if you come in, and I'll just say this last point, if, if y'all visit Black Classic Press, one of the things you'll see is that there's a lot of art on the, world, on the walls. And people come in, they always say, well, the art, the art, the art. That art, as much as it is for us, is really there, again, for the young folks coming in. You know, one of the things we wanted to do, and I especially wanted to do, was create a space that when young, not only adults, but when young people come in it, they have a memory. They have a memory of, of, a, of a cultural expression that they carry with them the rest of the days of their life. The rest of the days of their life. So no matter where they go on, and, and this is especially true for my grandkids as well. You know, I love them to be in there. And it's just normal to see art on the wall. It's normal for that to be in, in the space where work is, where business is, and all of those things happening at the same time. Look, I want to thank you again. And again. And please, uh, if you have uh, questions for Paul or Natalie and would like to speak with them now personally, feel free. And come back and see us at the Pratt. Again. Thank you. Again.